Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the x Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 27th, 2019, as this show is released on Memorial Day. For those that have lost loved ones protecting this country's freedom, I hope you are having a meaningful day remembering them. On this episode, we'll be previewing the Chicago White Sox homestand after Hell Week. And guess what? Brad Keller and the Kansas City Royals are coming back into town. So perhaps some more drama awaits us this week. After what happened in Minneapolis this weekend, can the White Sox pick themselves up against the Royals and Indians? Plus, we'll be recapping the action down in the minor leagues as Luis Robert is starting to get the hang of double-A pitching. And Nick Madrigal had a couple of big games this week. And of course, answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, we recap the Chicago White Sox Minnesota Twin Series as it was an ugly one. The White Sox were swept in an old-fashioned butt-whooping. Outscored 26-5 in three games. There are some takeaways from these three games that are worthy to keep track of for the rest of the 2019 season. So let's get that conversation started with the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the ghost of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. How's your Memorial Day weekend? I hope you got a chance to not watch the White Sox this weekend. I 
spared myself one game. I'm in New England, so I went to Boston, went to the uh, John F. Kennedy Presidential Library on, on, on the south uh, Boston coast there. So I spent a little time outside and checked the score and saw I didn't really miss anything and kind of caught up on the game and watched a few at-bats here and there, but watched uh, Charlie Tilson kind of make hash of a uh, fly ball in center again and thought, okay, I've, I've seen enough. Yeah, I had a birthday party for a one-year-old on Saturday. All right. Man, one-year-olds get a lot of toys <laughs> for for not being able to do much. They get a lot of toys. Especially if it's the first one. Yeah, especially the first one. He's got some awesome toys. We didn't have toys like this when we were growing up, Jim. He's got some pretty cool toys. Uh, but Sunday, I watched the Sunday game with the uh, 108ers. Uh, shout out to them at the uh, at their road watch party at Buffalo Wings and Reigns. Good time. Uh, wish the game was good uh, to watch it. As uh, as Jim, you know the White Sox. They're twenty three and twenty nine on the season after getting swept. They're thirteen games back of the Twins in the American League Central. And my main takeaway from this series is, damn, the Twins look good, especially offensively. And I'm not sure the Cleveland Indians, who are ten games back will be able to catch them and the Twins moving forward for the rest of the 2019 season, in my opinion, are the front runners for the American League Central. But for the White Sox, and you touched on it with Charlie Tilson, I think the lingering issue from this weekend is defense. In particular, the outfield, because it just wasn't Charlie Tilson. But I think that's where we should start with the conversation. Is Charlie Tilson bad defensively? It seems like it. I, I think the one fly ball, the pop fly in the right field that he, uh, yeah, that he broke in on, seen a park under it, and then scrambled and and dived for it and and came up short. That one looked ugly, but then Yonder Alonso did the same thing. So maybe there was some weird wind patterns that he didn't know and and you know, he couldn't have been aware of. And maybe Alonso was worse for misplaying the same thing later in the game when Tilson's fly ball provided some caution there. Uh, but yeah, that uh, the line drive over his head. It was. I wouldn't call it an easy play. Like I don't know if even if he you know freezes in his tracks and then breaks back. You know, uh, I don't know if he comes close. It was pretty smoked. But we, we saw it last year with some really ugly defensive numbers and some really, you know, I guess, just awful errors, uh, dropped balls um, that were, you know, that was really confusing. You know, he didn't really have a great reputation coming in. I think, you know, I would say right now that maybe he's improved a little bit in the corners, uh, that, that fly ball aside. I think center is out of his out of his reach. Like, I think even when he's made decent catches along the warning track and such, he's made it more complicated than it needs to be. Not even comparing it to, like, Adam Engel, because I think Engel's, you know, one of the best center fielders in the game. And, uh, you know, going from him to anybody um, is bad. But even comparing him to Larry Garcia, who I would consider average to slightly below average I think Garcia takes decent routes has an okay arm I think he just you know sometimes doesn't have the max physical skill set to make the most of his yeah I, I think he does what he can with his abilities I don't think his abilities are natural center field level I think when Tilson's out there, I think Larry makes things look easier. And then, you know, if you if you think that Angle makes you know Larry look a little bit uh, overwhelmed in center, you just keep adjusting that downward, and nothing looks good uh, from Larry on down. So, yeah, I think that's my takeaway: is that Tilson is right now definitely stretching center. Um, and if Tilson's playing center and Cordell isn't, then I guess Cordell's not a, an option there either. And is that weird to you? It's a bit weird to me. I thought we would see Ryan Cordell in center. Yeah, a little bit, um, you know, based on that he played there last year. But then again, you know, he's, 
uh, yeah, I guess when you think of foot speed and so forth, he's not really a stolen base threat the way Tillerson was running. So maybe you know, throw that in there, and he's he's a bit older than the rest of the field. You know, maybe he just doesn't look the center field part, so he doesn't get any run there. But um, yeah, I guess I wouldn't mind seeing him out there just for comparison's sake. Uh, I wouldn't expect I would expect him to be worse than Larry and uh, maybe along the lines of Tillerson, but I would at least give it a shot just to kind of understand what they're dealing with. How does this outfield defense get better, Jim? Is it as simple as we need to remain patient, even how painful it is until better outfielders arrive? Or do you think that defensively outfield, getting better defensively in the outfield is a skill that can be learned? Well, part of it, I think, is reps. Um, you know, we saw that with Polka got, you know, uh, <laughs> I think Polka is, you know, when we've seen, I guess, a wide variety of outfielders who do and don't get better. Like Polka and Vicieto, they did not really improve by any measurable degree. They got a little bit better. They didn't make as many awful plays, but they also didn't close in anything. They let, let a lot of balls fall down in front of them or on the warning track in Vicieto's case. Uh, they, they had unique weaknesses they could never quite cover. Nicky Delmonico, on the other hand, he, he's... I would say slightly below average, uh, but not a liability. He's somebody who looked terrible his first series. And then uh, I think his athleticism allowed him to be a little bit better. And now he's, you know, I would say fine for a left fielder. So we have seen some guys improve, some guys really not. And, you know, I guess that's what we'll have to see with Eloy. I think, you know, you know, I've talked about it before in the show that I didn't think Eloy was going to be that bad based on what I saw in Birmingham and Charlotte. So I just wonder if it's, you know, I guess a combination of, uh, you know, just being a little bit overwhelmed at the plate or, or at least not com- compartmentalizing his struggles at one part of the game and taking it to another um, yeah, I, I guess that's what I'd wonder about with him and, and stick it out a bit further. But I also wonder if, you know, maybe he was this bad or maybe he's lost a little bit of athleticism. He's, he's gotten bigger and gotten a bit older and matured physically. And maybe he's you know, already peaked in left field and, and it's really uh, about, you know, minimizing the damage there. Yeah, otherwise, you know, when it comes to Tilson, I think, you know, if you keep him in the corner, he's probably okay. Um, yeah, they're probably just really feeling around for a true center fielder right now. And then when it comes to this kind of twin series where they just kind of get beat up, you know, it might be a case where they're a bit punch drunk and trying to do too much and overthrowing cutoff men and giving up extra bases. And you know, also maybe it's a you know, reflection on Daryl Boston not being that great either, you know, considering he's in charge of them. But I, I do wonder when they get to the major league level, how much improvement is, uh, you know, attributable to coaching and just how much is due to reps and recognizing things, mistakes they've made and adjusting to correct them. Well, I mean, if they want to make a change, Aaron Rowan, I believe, is still a roving outfield coordinator for the White Sox. So they need someone to coach up the outfielders. I mean, Aaron Rowan was a pretty good center fielder in his day. It doesn't mean that he's a good coach. Just saying from his past experience, we know that he knows how to play good defense in the outfield. But it is another thing to coach outfielders to be better defensively. Yeah, and maybe, you know, with Luis Basabe and Luis Robert and, and so forth and minors, maybe that's where the attention should be for trying to get a center fielder. Um, also, you know, that back before Rowan, they did have Devon White as an outfielder, uh, outfield instructor, and, and White is one of the greatest center fielders the game's ever had. And uh, that was also during a period where the White Sox had a really bad outfield defense too. So maybe it's more about talent acquisition and, you know, even the, the, the brightest coaches or the coaches with the best resumes can't really help them. Yeah, and that's why I bring up 
the part where do White Sox fans, do we have to remain patient and wait for Luis Robert to come to Chicago and maybe one of these other outfielders that starts hitting better in Birmingham that we start penciling in their names moving forward because while Charlie Tilson is hitting better, and we're going to talk about the offense here in a moment uh, during this opening segment, uh, it's just, again, it's one of these things that Charlie, I don't think, hits well enough, even though he's hitting over 300, to balance out his bad defense. Like, if you look at his overall value, Jim, I, I just worry that if he's bad defensively, that's going to wreck as far as his full value. It's like the inverse of Adam Engel. Yeah, no, it's a little bit tough, especially when you have these guys who are best off in corners or in the DH spot is taken up by Yonder Alonso and such where you don't really have room to accommodate a bat first kind of. It's weird thinking about Charlie Tilson as a bat first guy, but he might be right now. Um, yeah, it's... It's not great. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of Connor Gillespie that, you know, when Gillespie was, I guess, at his best, he was a good bench bat. Uh, you know, he, his left-handed swing could basically put the bat at any fastball, whether he was, uh, you know, in the game or coming off the bench cold. His defense was a liability, and the more he played there, the more he gave away value, and then if he went to a slump, it, it was all erased. And I think that's the kind of balance that Tilson is really negotiating, and you know, probably has to negotiate over the rest of his career since, um, yeah, and, and, you know, when it comes to center field, I would still guess it's the, you know, the lower leg and, you know, the, the injuries to his, uh, you know, hamstring and then the, the lower leg injuries he had with his foot and ankle. You know, that's probably probably what uh, sapped him of his center field ability. And now it's probably about just uh, containing the losses. Yeah, the White Sox might be trotting out three left fielders. Yeah. At the moment with the way that they're. 25-man roster. Yeah, that's, that's what I was up. thinking with uh, with Houston and Michael Brantley. I was thinking, like, how much fun would it have been if the White Sox signed Michael Brantley? And then it's like, well, Brantley's a left fielder. And, and, you know, it's, uh, I, I still think he would be fun to have on the roster, but when you think about the outfield, I don't know if he would improve the outfield defense all that much. Improve the offense. Oh, yeah. But even this upcoming offseason, like, I like Marcel Azuna. Like, I think his bat could really help the White Sox. But again left fielder not one that's particularly yeah. good at left field yeah i think they're counting on Luis robert an awful lot they are they really are and i think they were even counting on john jay to help out with the outfield defense but who knows maybe john jay needs a new hip uh anyways uh moving on from the defensive struggles in the outfield i, I want to chat about the offensive struggles because this is hell week and it just wrapped up. And over seven games against the Astros and the Twins, the White Sox scored 19 runs. That is not going to cut it. But I think that based on the quality of competition, I'm not surprised. But they scored 14 runs over four games against the Houston Astros. And I was expecting a little bit better effort against the Minnesota Twins because I don't think the Twins have the same level of pitching as the Astros do. And the White Sox had 36 strikeouts to week, this weekend to just four walks. And it just seemed like the Twins pitchers were, at times, just throwing fastballs right down the middle of the heart of the plate, 94, 95, 96. And the White Sox hitters could not make them pay. Uh, any idea on where the offense went this weekend, Jim? Well, part of it is being banged up. They had a couple scratches with Larry out and, I guess, Anderson uh 
cut his wrist or something like that with a with a foul ball or some kind of weird swing they put on that he injured his wrist somehow and uh, you know needed a couple games off and then throw in Yosebi Zavala making his debut and uh, you know needing more out of Jose Rondon and, and Yolmer Sanchez and so forth and it was their one of their weaker lineups and it's already kind of an an unbalanced lineup at best but yeah it was it seemed well I, I thought oddly enough that their best at bats came against Jose Barrios who usually makes them look terrible you know Brios gave a lot of hits they they battled they had some uh you know good sequences and such but they just you know the, the pitching didn't hold up and really didn't really yeah I, the offensive uh surge ended when Jose Abreu hit a sharp grounder but ended in a 3-6-3 double play, or 3-4-3 double play and uh, it was just kind of all downhill from there uh, but yeah, I think it's just right now a, a lopsided offense, and it seemed to me like a lot of these swings were kind of tentative and almost like they were guarding against changeups or something off speed, and we're just getting yeah fooled or outguessed by fastballs caught in between. So I'm I'm guessing you know it's nothing quite I wouldn't call it systemic or the sign of a bad offense. I think it's the sign of an inconsistent offense, maybe one that can just get bogged down. It's also a, a you know this is. Yeah, hell week and a greater hell month where they have so many games in a row aren't able to regroup and such so I, I can see struggles being a little bit on the contagious side to where uh, you know the just the hits aren't there and you just go game after game after game and and really aren't able to regroup especially when the uh, best nine hitters aren't out there and and a lot of small nagging injuries are getting in the way of probably the best lineup they can they can muster. Yeah, because when you compare what the White Sox have done in the month of May in 26 games compared to what they did in April over 23 games, uh, it's a pretty significant difference. As a team in the month of April, the White Sox hit 265 with a 334 on base percentage and slugged 438. That's a great month for any team. As a matter of fact, that that line was fifth best in, in Major League Baseball in the month of April. In May... As a team, the White Sox are hitting 232, 285 on base percentage, and slugging 360. And Jose Abreu, Jim, has eight home runs in the month of May. He could reach 10 home runs for the month, which is a terrific month for him. But the pop that we saw from the month of April from this offense is not carrying it over. And you mentioned as far as the injuries, is that part of it, do you think, on the pretty significant decrease especially in the slugging front for this team yeah i think part of it although with anderson it's uh that you know that's a recent development suffered this series so you can't really go back that far with him but you know i think it's more a matter of just uh i think when you're watching anderson's at bats he's been pitched more away and he's had to settle more for trying to poke the ball to right field and uh get you know settling more for singles pitches off the plates you know he's muscling them you know when he gets uh, pitched inside pitch off the plate i think he's being tested on the fringes of the strike zone so i think maybe his early season outburst was uh him showing the league that uh you know they just can't throw anything to him and now they're just getting a little bit finer about how they approach him and I think Moncada is going to be naturally streaky. Um, you know, he strikes me as somebody who's going to be uh, an, an all-star some weeks and, and look like uh, uh, his 2018 self, you know, in other weeks and so forth. So uh, I, I think his 
contact ability will kind of come and go depending on how he's pitched and, and what he's thinking about in, in terms of uh, you know what he's facing. So I can see both when I think when when both of them are leading the offense, I think that can be the case where uh, the offense disappears for weeks at a time. I think it's more a matter of when when the offense stabilizes that they, they get what they're getting from Jose Abreu. That's one, but also you know something from the DH spot. Yonder Alonso really hasn't done anything, and then also Eloy Jimenez. Um, when it comes to the White Sox offense being a fully realized entity, I think it's going to have to be Jimenez in the middle of it. Right now, Jimenez has been, you know, he's, he's had some good games, but he's also had some games where uh, he's just rolling over pitches and, and not really barreling the ball. And I think that's going to be uh, a bigger source of the White Sox overall struggles than maybe it should be for a guy who's getting his first plate appearances in the majors. Yeah, it's only seven games in the month of May, but Aloy Jimenez has four hits. Three of them are home runs with zero walks and 13 strikeouts. With Jimenez, is it about just still for him getting his timing down, or is there just something else going on that you're noticing when he's at the plate? Well, it just seems like a lot of sliders, a lot of stuff low and away, and he's not quite getting his... Yeah, he had that one great, <laughs> great swing in Houston uh, for an opposite field homer. But I think uh, when his his opposite field swing or his ability to cover low and away with sharper breaking stuff in the majors just might not be there right now. Just a lot of grounders to the left side. A lot of you know when he does put the ball in the air, it's uh, to the right side. It's more of the weaker flare variety. Uh, so I, I think there's improvement to be made. He's hitting into shifts a bit. Um, you know they're they're putting three infielders on the left side and he's hitting right into that. So does seem like there there needs to be I guess a bit more patience not just you know when it comes to the zero walks but patience in terms of uh how he gets to the ball when it's low and away now there was Aloy Jimenez and we talked about the offensive struggles we did get a debut this weekend Sebi Zavala who's been on this show a couple years ago uh when he was with the Wids at Salem Dash uh makes his way to the major leagues because Wellington Castillo is on the injured list after uh, he suffered some pretty brutal, uh, when you especially look at the replay, uh, foul balls to the head. So hopefully Wellington Castillo is okay, uh, but he's going to be out for a while. And now here comes Sebi Zavala uh, filling in for Castillo. And uh, it's not the best uh, Major League debuts uh, in his first five at-bats. Sebi Zavala has struck out, so he's 0 for 5 with five strikeouts. Uh, what did you think of his debut, Jim? <laughs> Not good. Uh, <laughs> no, it just seems like somebody who's either overmatched or just jumping. You know, he's swinging through a lot of fastballs off the plate and such. You know, he looks, you know, based on, on his strike zone control in AAA, I didn't expect much from him. I thought it was the kind of promotion that was you know, driven by circumstances and not by talent. Uh, you know, Zavala's been missed time with some wrist in- issues, and he had wrist issues last year, so he hasn't really had mastery at the AAA level. And and they did catch him during a decent week. Uh, the extra base power was starting to show up, but still, even when he had some uh, you know some strong performances in terms of power, he still you know I think he struck out ten times in two walks. You know, a 30% strikeout rate. That's not really his game. Uh, at least it wasn't when he was hitting well in Birmingham and Winston-Salem. I think, you know, maybe that's something that's conducive to AAA and the way they're pitching him. Uh, you know, the more polished breaking stuff combined with, you know, decent fastballs might throw him off and something he needs to learn. Uh, but he wasn't showing it at AAA, so I didn't expect him to really find it at the majors. <laughs> I do hope he puts the ball in play before he's, you know, sent back down. But I think I'd, 
ideally, as much as you know, people aren't excited by the idea that you know Wellington Castillo comes back with a missed, you know minimum missed amount of time, shows at least a little bit of something, and allows Zavala to go back down to AAA and actually figure it, iron out his uh, his swing and miss issues and his strike zone control issues at Charlotte before he comes back up. Yeah, because Zach Collins on Sunday hit a grand slam against the Durham Bulls. Yeah. Uh, I, I and I got this question quite a few times on Twitter, uh, especially DMs, uh, asking me is the reason why Zach Collins is not with the White Sox is because of his recent concussion and being on that injured list. I think that's the reason why Zach Collins is not with Chicago. But if they were both healthy, Jib, do you think that the White Sox would have still picked Zavala over Collins to replace Wellington Castillo? Not for a short-term uh, solution. If they're counting on Wellington Castillo missing, you know, one or two weeks due to the concussion protocol, then I think they would have gone for simplicity. And I think simplicity in this case is calling up Zavala, who is one on the 40-man roster. And two, he's, his game calling and his, his working with the pitching staff, his pitch framing, it's it's a lot higher regard, more highly regarded than Collins is. So I think if they're trying to do the least to disrupt the 40-man roster, disrupt the pitching staff, and I think the pitching staff needs all the help and get, especially starting a rotation, then Zavala is probably the the easiest way to go for like a one or two week thing. Now I think if you know maybe you know God forbid James McCann gets hurt and Castillo showing nothing, and they need somebody who's more of a starter, or they can devote more. It bats to grooming a player and not just, you know, some stopgap starts to help James McCann rest, then maybe they might go with Collins as part of a bigger move, a more bigger transition towards thinking about 2020. But I think for the time being, uh, Zavala's edge when it comes to receiving and uh, the defensive side probably gives him the edge for, you know, both this one and, and maybe any other short stint until, you know, maybe even September comes along. Now, as far as the Minnesota Twins, like I said at the beginning part of this segment, they're they're red hot. I mean, they're 13 games ahead of the Chicago White Sox. They're 10 games up on Cleveland, Jim. Already 10 games up on May 26th. I feel like this is too much ground to make up for Cleveland based on their current state. And this is an Indians team that just let go Carlos Gonzalez because he's not doing anything offensively for them. So their outfield woes and their offensive woes still continue as Jose Ramirez is really having a down year for the Indians. Uh, Do you think those 10 games are too much to make up knowing what we know about the Cleveland Indians early in 2019? It seems like it. And I I know that guys have been burned before by calling divisions over in, in late May. But I think in this case, when you look at everything the Indians are going through and and struggling with uh, and, just how deep the Twins' offense is. Like they're not, you know, relying on one or two miracle seasons to, you know, propel this lineup. They're getting, a, you know, it's a tough lineup one through nine, basically. Especially when Byron Buxton is hitting right now. I think with with Buxton, he's somebody who glues the outfield defense together. But he's had, you know, a, a pretty good run of production this season. And if that's sustainable, if he stays healthy, then yeah, that's just, you know, getting offense from him along with his defense is just a whole dimension changer for their for their lineup. So. Yeah, it, it's tough. I think really with the Twins, my biggest concern would be the pitching staff. The bullpen is a little bit thin. The the starting rotation is a bit thin. And so maybe if like one or two key injury strikes and throws things out of order, then maybe they can have uh, uh, you know, a couple weeks where they're out slugged and the Indians can get back in it. But given the injury... In- 
the Indians' injuries uh, in the starting rotation, and given uh, you know the the outfield playing as poorly as it looked like it could, uh, they really couldn't afford to have Jose Ramirez. They really needed Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez to carry the whole thing. And if they're not, and if their pitchers are injured, you know what do you call their strengths? Uh, we know what the twin strengths know. are, but when it comes to the Indians. They don't really have anything. I mean, the run prevention is still pretty good, but not you know not really to sustain an offense that's that bad. So yeah, it's it's uh it strikes me as a little bit you know rash, I guess, to say that the division is over in May, but it's looking like that. And especially I think with the Indians, you know, not really being able to spend their way into contention. That you know if they're ten games behind or even like say eight games behind in you know early July, they might think about selling like kind of a controlled sell in order to try to regroup and maybe put a better effort in twenty twenty and and if that's the case then yeah the last three months could be as anticlimactic as it gets. Yeah, especially for the American League Central. I agree with you, Jim. In a month, late June, if they're still ten games back of the twins and the Red Sox and the Rays don't look now. Here comes Oakland. They've won 10 straight games. Uh, if all of these teams are five games or more ahead of the Indians for that wild card spot, I agree with you. I could see Cleveland looking to move at Trevor Bauer or maybe even a Corey Kluber. And as you called it, a control cell, moving one of these assets. That will bring back a lot, right? Uh, as far as key prospects that, that might be able to help them. I don't know. I think Cleveland is on the verge of their window closing. And with the way that their ownership is fiscally conservative, uh, <laughs> as far as spending yeah, habits. That's one way to put it. Yeah, one way to put it. I'm trying to be nice here. Uh, that this is a team that could just flip the switch and go from owning the American League Central to another rebuilding team. And I don't know what that means for Francisco Lindor, but it seems like with ownership, they've already told fans before this season, enjoy them while you can. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's it's interesting looking at the standings right now on May 27th and see the Twins just doing so well. And the fact that the Indians are right with the White Sox, the Tigers, and the Royals looking at a double-digit deficit uh, and the standings behind the Minnesota Twins. And it is weird to say, but I just don't see anyone catching the Twins at this moment. Uh, even though we still have June, July, August, and September to play. Uh, the Twins are playing that good of baseball, and everyone else in the American League Central is uh, is not. But the good news for the White Sox, maybe they could bounce back this week with a seven-game homestand against the divisional rivals, the Kansas City Royals and the Cleveland Indians. We are going to be previewing this week's series against the Royals. That's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. Why is SeatGeek better than the rest? Well, a quick look at their app store shows over 50,000 five-star reviews. How's that for customer satisfaction? And it's a better process. This is how SeatGeek works. It pulls together millions of tickets 
from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10. Every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets, not only for the Chicago White Sox, but I'm going to be going on this trip with my friends, going to Portland, and we decided, you know what? Let's go catch a MLS game. So we're going to go see the Portland Timbers. So I bought eight tickets off SeatGeek to catch one of their games as we'll be in Portland in July. So I'm excited uh, to have that experience. And I could thank SeatGeek for making it easy for me to find tickets even for a big group. And the best part is that SeatGeek will give you $10 off your first purchase. All you have to do is just use our promo code. So download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And yes, the Kansas City Royals visit Chicago again. The Royals are 18-34 and 34 for the season. They are last place in the American League Central. However, the Royals have a negative 41 run differential. And if you use expected win-loss record, which takes into consideration runs allowed and runs scored and what your record should be based on your offensive output and your run prevention, uh, the Royals should be 22-30. and 30. So they are underachieving by four games. Compare that to the White Sox. The White Sox should be 21-31. and 31. So the White Sox are overachieving by a couple games. So expected win-loss record, the Royals should be ahead of the White Sox by a game. Uh, but obviously that's not the case. Offensively, the Royals are averaging four and a half runs per game. Run prevention, they're allowing 5.1 runs per game. In their last 10 games, the Kansas City Royals are 3-7. and seven. But with this series, the game that I have circled on the calendar, Jim, is Tuesday. As the probable pitching matchup for the White Sox and Royals. The good news for the White Sox, it's Lucas Giolito on the mound. But Brad Keller will be starting for the Kansas City Royals, which was a very memorable game last time he started in Chicago by throwing at Tim Anderson. Should we expect more drama from this series, Jim? I think only if Anderson does something. I think the the matter is largely settled, and I think it would be dumb for Keller to start anything himself, considering he came out well ahead. You know, he, he threw at Anderson. He didn't really even miss a start for doing so, the, based on the way he, uh, the timing and how he dropped his appeal. Uh, there was really nothing for him, whereas Anderson had to miss one game because of the, you know, what he said during the during the flap. But I think, you know, Keller came out ahead, and I think if he tried to restart something else, then I think the suspension would be harsher. So I think that's a, that's the case. However, if Anderson does do something to the Royals, I can't imagine that there would be a little bit of flair. <laughs> I think he, uh, uh, maybe he might not, you know, and he seemed to do that with his walk-off, that he didn't scream directly across the plate where Martin Maldonado was standing. He might have recognized that that might have been a bit of excessive, like screaming across the bow of the catcher. And, and something to correct, he did his screaming a bit further away and, and didn't uh, you know, go in the catcher's airspace. Maybe that's the correction he's made. But I think if he does something well, I think he might, you know, assuming that it's not a ridiculous of circumstances like they're trailing 14 to uh, 1 or something like that and really getting blown out, if it's you know close game, he does something well, I think he'll uh, show a bit of his trademark excitement and see if it baits the Royals into doing anything. I think, you know, in, in previous games, the White Sox and Royals, when Anderson has, uh, you know, made a show of it and the Royals have responded, it hasn't worked out well for the White Sox when it comes to the final score of the game. So, uh, you know, that's something to consider for the both sides, whether, you know, this, uh, you know, 
I guess, igniting the emotions on both sides, whether that, you know, actually benefits the White Sox at all. But in this case, I think, uh, you know, should Anderson, you know, well, first of all, it's his wrist issue, whether he's able to get back in the lineup on time is one thing, whether he'll be able to hit for power with it is another, you know, might not be the timing for uh, him to break out and, and actually have something to flip. Uh, hopefully he is in the lineup because I'd like to see that. That's yeah. more intrigue if he can play Tuesday. And also Jose Rondon really isn't, yeah, I think he's swinging out of his shoes right now. Yeah, I was, I'm was. i trying to be nice on this show. <laughs> I mean, yeah. back to the offensive struggles for the month. I mean, there are guys that I don't know why they're getting at bats anymore. I mean, with Jose Rondon, if this is what he's going to continue to do, Jim, offensively, I mean, it brings up, should the White Sox call up Danny Mendek and get a look at him? But Mendek would need to get starts. And do you want to take a bats away from Yomer Sanchez, who's starting to get better offensively, but is still not good? Yeah, I mean, if, if Anderson's got to miss a prolonged period of time, this offense is really going to get hit hard. Because uh, I agree with you, Jose Rendon right now just doesn't look good at the plate. Uh, the other probable pitchers for this series, again, Tuesday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. This is the marquee matchup. It'll be Brad Keller against Lucas Giolito. But on Memorial Day today, Monday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it's Homer Bailey against Yvonne Nova. And we're going to talk about Nova here in a moment. Wednesday night, 7.10 p.m. Central Time. It's to be determined for the Royals, but it will be Ronaldo Lopez for the White Sox. So the White Sox get Nova, Giolito, and Lopez for this series. Uh, the Royals over the weekend uh, put up 16 runs against the New York Yankees, which is uh, more than expected. Uh, could we see a repeat of this weekend for the White Sox run prevention efforts, Jim, uh, as Kansas City is uh, is someone on a hot streak offensively? Uh, it, th- I think they'll be tested. Uh, you know, the Royals looking at their lineup when, you know, Adalberto Mondesi is uh, looking every bit like uh, the the shortstop of the future for the Royals, and Whit Merrifield's doing Whit Merrifield things. Uh, Hunter Dozier is is hanging in there. Like yeah, I thought maybe he's playing a bit over his head, but yeah, his regression has been a gentle one. Um, you know, Alex Gordon is not quite his All Star level, but fine. You know, the, I think they're a lineup that you know has you know legit starters at like five or six spots, which I think is better than you might expect for, you know, what the Royals came into the season projecting to be. So that's the case where uh, they are getting some performances that I think, you know, when you, when you factor in their speed, uh, they can, uh, you know, cause some headaches for some pitching staffs. However, I, I would expect that, you know, Homer Bailey getting starts for the Royals. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> uh, I would hope this is the series where the White Sox offense gets back on track. And at very least you get some high scoring games that the White Sox end up on the, uh, better side of one thing that I am looking forward into the series is Ivan Nova start on Monday. He started three games at guaranteed rate field this season, Jim, his line 11 innings pitched 24 hits allowed 21 runs allowed 20 of those were earned. That's a 16.36 ERA. He's allowed five home runs with seven walks and eight strikeouts. Ivan Nova has been terrible at home and I'm hoping to see that he gained some of his road magic and has a normal start against the Royals at home on Monday. What are you looking for in this series? Well, I'm, ho- I'm hoping for more ground balls, which is you know, what he was when he when he came over. That's what he was supposed to provide. I think maybe maybe some of the struggles were due to trying to figure out an arsenal against left-handed uh, 
hitting because left-handed hitting hit them, eat them alive. And uh, Pittsburgh, and uh, I think they're trying to see if they could maximize the arsenal to combat major splits, but maybe that screwed it all up and <laughs> it made them struggle against righties too, and you end up with a pitcher who can't get anybody out. But the, the, the Nova that, that started his last game out, that was the guy who was supposed to show up, the guy getting a lot of grounders. And I think if that's the case, the White Sox, you know, you would talk about their defense. Like, their outfield defense is terrible. Their infield defense has actually been pretty good. Uh, Tim Anderson's play has smoothed out at short. Yohan Mikado has been pretty good at third. Uh, Yolmer has been, you know, Yolmer at second after that, that shaky start. So I think when you look around the infield, the defense there is about what you'd hope to see at this point in time. It's just been all in the outfield. So I think ground balls are the way to go. We'll be re- recapping this series Wednesday night on Sox Machine Live. But continuing on with the show, coming up next, Jim brings us this week's Minor League Report. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. Welcome to the Minor League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where Zach Collins has catcher all to himself after the promotion of Sebi Zavala. Collins is starting to get back into regular playing time after undergoing the concussion protocol, and he's starting to rediscover his groove with a grand slam on Sunday night. Daniel Polka, on the other hand, is in the midst of another big slump. He had four consecutive 0 for 4 nights, but managed to end his hitless skit at 19 at bats before Sunday's game concluded. The Knights' rotation is mainly journeymen and castoffs due to injury, but Dylan Cease remains, and he's pitching fairly well. Now that he's not pitching in cold rain every time out, he's been able to toss six innings and average 100 pitches over his last two starts, which resembles a major league workload. Down in Birmingham, Blake Rutherford left Sunday's game with an injury apparently suffered during an inning-ending catch. We'll see if he misses any time, but a breather could be warranted, as he's been hitting under 200 all season. Currently, he's batting 181 with a 224 OBP and a 292 slugging percentage, with eight walks to an uncharacteristic 38 strikeouts over 40 games. He's the only one of the season-long Barons who hasn't yet found any traction. Luis Gonzalez, Gavin Sheets, and Laz Rivera have all struggled, but they're at least trending in the right direction, gradually as it may be. Luis Basabe and Luis Robert are the only ones rolling. Robert's got a five-game hitting streak, and Basabe just had one broken on Sunday. Pitching has been a bigger problem for the Barons lately, weirdly enough. Jimmy Lambert and Bernardo Flores have been fine. 
but Kyle Kubat and Blake Battenfield have regressed. Cody Medeiros is 0-7 with an ERA just over 7, and Alec Hansen and Zach Birdie are finding clean innings much more difficult to come by at AA. In Winston-Salem, Nick Madrigal is finally rolling, having reached base 18 times over his last 10 games. With four walks to one strikeout, he hit his 9th and 10th doubles of the season on Sunday and stole his 13th and 14th bases. Steele Walker is living up to his name by drawing 13 walks over 21 games, but he's batting just 222 and slugging 347, which should be higher in a hitter-friendly park. 2017 fourth-rounder Lincoln Hensman is showing signs of getting it together, throwing a pair of strong starts that have lowered his ear rate of 540. Connor Pilkington is alternating ugly outings with outstanding ones three games into his Winston-Salem career. Down in Kannapolis, Corey Zangari came off the injured list, but Bryce Bush went on it. Dan Victor said he fouled a couple balls off the same spot on his foot over the course of a week and couldn't play through it. Zangari is back, but he isn't yet a threat. He went 0-4 in his first two games back. With Bush out and nearly every hitter except Lennon Sosa and Romy Gonzalez scuffling, the Intimidators have lost 9 of their last 11. That's it for the minor league report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine, and helping support the show and site by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Machine. And of course, helping answer your questions is Jim. And the first question we have, Jim... Comes from Stupid Sox Takes on Twitter. Not all Sox Takes are stupid. But anyways, they're asking, Jim, with the draft about a week away, could you explain to me the White Sox thinking with possibly picking high school shortstop C.J. Abrams? He seems like the the riskiest of all top picks, and he would take a while before he'd help the rebuild. His game also doesn't scream potential superstar to me at pick three. Well, I guess to, to work backwards, you know, Nick Madrigal, I don't think his skill set really said potential superstar. I think what you're looking for with, you know, the, this kind of draft where there isn't really, you know, the, the top, I guess, the, you know, number two pick after Adley Rushman is, you know, projected to be Bobby Witt, who is another prep shortstop. And I think when you have prep infielders that, you know, the, the range of outcomes is pretty wide. I think the case for selecting Abrams would be, you know, one thinking he's the best player available. Uh, and two, you know, being short on up-the-middle players. And the White Sox really don't have a whole lot of depth when it comes to whether it's shortstop or second base or center field. You know, they have some guys lined up. You know, they're, they're kind of one-ply. They have Anderson short. They have, you know, I think they're hoping for Madrigal at second, and they're hoping for a Luis Robert in center. But if those guys don't work out or should there be an injury or so forth, they don't really have a whole lot of depth behind them. And so I think, you know, if they want Abrams drafting him as a shortstop and you can move across the, you know, to the other side of the infield or move into center field, uh, you know, that would add to their ranks of depth. And, uh, you know, I think there's an argument to be made for that. Um, you know, I guess my concern with Andrew Vaughn would be, you know, we've, we've seen the White Sox try to draft for major league need or, or trying to, you know, put them in the uh, the roster as quickly as possible. You saw that Carson Fulmer, and we saw that with Zach Collins. We've seen that with uh, um, Zach Birdie. You know, the, these these attempts to get guys who can get in the majors as quickly as possible, uh, they aren't as 
big of a lock or at least as, as sure of a thing as they seem to be, or at least, you know, other teams maybe make it look. So I guess that would be my concern with Vaughn going the other way, where if you draft for a guy who's going to be, you know, a corner infield spot and, uh, you know, isn't going to be a, a great value there defensively and you're counting on his bat, uh, you know, the white, way the White Sox have drafted bats, I guess Jake Berger is another one. Uh, th- their performances really haven't come over and dominated the Meyer Leagues, and, and they haven't been able to force their way in the picture either. So I think that's really the, the argument when you're looking at uh, Vaughn versus Abrams or a uh, position player uh, who isn't an up-the-middle player versus a prep player who does have the athleticism to hang uh, at one of three positions up the middle. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be a debate all the way probably to the finish line, and, and I can see both sides of it right now. And um, I don't have the fear of athletes that a lot of White Sox fans have, uh, especially seeing Tim Anderson come into it. You know, he was the kind of, you know, people make fun of the Jared Mitchell pick or Courtney Hawkins or so forth, but Tim Anderson was right there, and uh, I'd rather have him than like Jake Berger or Zach Collins or those picks, you know, where the guys are have to fight like hell to stay off first base. So, you know, that's I guess that's what I'm coming down to. And given the way the White Sox have struggled to get pr- production out of their first round pick, I don't really have a whole lot of faith in any one player right now. <laughs> so I guess, uh, you know, if you want to really be nihilistic about it, that's where I would fall. But uh, I think when it comes to player versus player, I can see the merits for both. And I don't think either one is uh, a bad pick at this point. I couldn't say it any better. I think to help squash some of the fears when it comes to C.J. Abrams, C.J. Abrams played at one of the top high school programs in the country at Blessed Trinity Catholic School. That school was not afraid of some of the most highly regarded national tournaments throughout the country. C.J. Abrams has been on Team USA multiple times, so he's gotten experience playing with the wood bats, and he's demonstrated some pop with the wood bats. I kind of disagree with the he seems like the riskiest of top picks, and it would take a while before he helped the rebuild. Sure, yes, I think his estimated time of arrival, as I wrote in the player profile, is 2023, and at that point, Tim Anderson's a 30-year-old shortstop, so consider that for a moment. I think he does have the skill set to become a potential superstar because there's not players in this league that have a 70-grade to 80-grade run tool who can stick at shortstop and has good arm strength to stay there long-term, but also have a bat that could be a 50-grade power tool. And with his speed, I mean, he may not hit more than 20 homers in a season, but who knows with this juice ball anymore, Jim? We didn't think Tim Anderson was a 20-home run guy when he was with the Birmingham Barons uh, back in the day, and his prospect standing was escalating uh, as he made his journey to the White Sox. We would have been happy with 10 home runs a season from Tim Anderson. Uh, so I, I think that C.J. Abrams, there's a lot of people that are concerned about uh, as far as his uh, stock and as far as his player profile, but I, he just provides a lot more tools. And I do think that he's probably the best player available when you're looking at overall tool set. But as you hinted already, Jim, what are the White Sox going to do? Are they going to take the best player available or are they going to take a player that could help them the soonest? We'll find out next Monday 
And remember, we do have the Sox Machine Draft Show, so we'll be covering the first-round pick for the Chicago White Sox. That draft show will be live on Mixer.com slash Sox Machine. You can also listen to it on SoxMachine.com. It'll be getting at 5.30 p.m. Central Time as the Major League Baseball Draft starts at 6 p.m. Central Time. So lots of preview and lots of chat about what the White Sox will do with the first-round pick. Thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Pete Chapman. And Pete is asking, Jim, with the players that are on the 40-man roster, what would your ideal 25-man roster be right now? Interesting. If you don't want to do bullpen, guys, that's fine since that makes the topic longer and more confusing. Thanks, Pete. I, I think right now with the 40-man, I'm you know, as depressing as it might be to say. I'm more or less fine with how it is. I think I would just swap out Dylan Cease for whatever you know, you consider the last man in the bullpen to be Juan Manaya or whoever. I think I'd go with, you know, Cease in the rotation just because, you know, with, well, we'll see with what Ivan Nova does and whether he's close to resembling his old self. But if you have Nova and you have Ben Wales and you have Covey, that's just three spots where it's just in, you know, you don't feel great about your chances of winning a game where I think having Cease out there, even if he has to throw a tough five each time out, you just have something to watch. You have something to think where, you know, okay, you can get five shot at innings just because, you know, the stuff, you know, hitters might be able to foul it off or give him a hard time, but he also has the ability to miss bats, and, uh, you know, that might serve him well, you know, especially given the lopsided nature of uh, American League offenses. You know, some offenses might give him a hard time. Others might be you know, not much different from an International League one. So I think uh, I'd be fine with him getting a look. And if it doesn't, you know, if it seems like it's too soon, you can send him back down. I don't think you'd really be worse for the wear. Um, otherwise, you know, there are some, you know, decisions. I think we talked about Danny Mendick. I would probably wait for him to see if Yolmer is really, you know, uh, tapped out offensively and is really just a glove first bench infielder with, out any kind of uh, spot starter ability there uh, before calling Mendick up because I think you'd want to see Mendick get you know at least four starts a week if he's up in the majors and it just strikes me as a little bit too soon I think Polka for Alonzo I would like to see that at some point I imagine by the I would say mid-June you know I, I think I'd give Alonzo a couple more weeks and then see what John Jay's doing and, and if they're both you know scuffling or having a hard time seeing a lineup I think just maybe turn the page on both of them uh, call it a failed uh, gambit and then just uh, you know use those roster spots for you know I guess more of the lottery ticket uh, type of player and then you know we talked about with the catchers Wellington Castillo if he's still hitting under 200 probably best to go with Sebi Zavala assuming Zavala can get enough time to iron out his AAA issues or you know if James McCann com- comes back down to earth and looks more like the replacement level catcher that he was with Detroit. Maybe then you go to Zach Collins and you just see like, okay, how is he looking at the majors? How bad is it for pitchers? You know, is he going to be any close to, you know, is he more of a first baseman? Do we take that into account with uh, first base and DH with Jose Abreu's future? Uh, I think you might want to use the last couple months to see what Collins has, how close he is, how bad he is a catcher before, you know, making bigger decisions there. So I think those are three I have in mind, but I think for right now, uh, Dylan Cease, you know, given the health issues and, and given, uh, um, I guess, just how thin they are and, and injuries uh, disrupting some of it, I think Dylan Cease is the only one I'd really want to see right now because of uh, his talent forcing the issue. Yeah, I got a chance to jump on 670 The Score on Sunday, and that was one, obviously, whenever we do these radio segments, Jim, no matter what the radio station is, I feel like we're always asked about when is Dylan Cease coming up? When is Dylan yeah. Cease coming up? 
I am with you. If this is what Manny Benuelos is, and I, I'm not even 100% sure he's fully healthy, um, but let's say he is, then I think instead of suffering through these starts, we have a pretty good idea that he's not a starting pitcher. Call up Cease. I mean, what do you got to lose? What does he even need to work on in Charlotte, by the way? That's an, that's something that I've been thinking about. I mean, what, do you want him to work on reducing his walk rate? Uh, is there something in particular that they're waiting for? And I know this kind of circles back to Rick Hahn's latest interview that he had uh, with the media saying that he doesn't feel like the time is right to call up Dylan Cease. Uh, but this is kind of like the area of like, can you provide some more clarity so we have a better understanding of your decision making here? Because while you're having Dylan Cease pitch in AAA, uh, fans are suffering through Manny Benuelos. Yeah, and, and you know, like you said, I don't think his, uh, his control problems, the, the walks seem to come in clumps, uh, but there isn't like one thing he's really working on. I think it's going to be like Carlos Rodon. That's what I keep coming back to. Uh, just the fastball and curveball combination is so good that the changeup is more or less nominal and not going to be how he gets major league hitters out anyway. I think he's going to go with his curveball until it proves he can't and throw some changeups along the way. And I think, uh, you know, that's it's worth learning. And he's also had the elbow repaired once. So, you know, should he have the bad luck that struck down Michael Kopech and uh, Dane Dunning and so forth, that's a whole bigger issue because that will be his second Tommy John surgery. So he's already kind of pitching on borrowed time a little bit, you know, given that uh, he's you know had the elbow repaired once. So that's why I, I'm fine with him, you know, being aggressive with him and not considering it. Like if you send him back down because you realize, like, oh, that's you know not doing him good to have you know, throw three and four really tough innings, and and he's not really, I guess, going up and down the way you'd want to see him. Then maybe send him back down. I don't think there's harm in sending a pitcher back down. Um, I agree. I, I think some people consider it death sentence or embarrassing or whatever. Now, you know, if he proves that he's not worth it, yeah. Uh, not worth the starts immediately. It's not the, wor- the end of the world. So, um, th- yeah, that's, I guess, I-, I guess I'm inclined to be more aggressive. I think with, like M- Michael Kopech last year when he had the, um, you know, the, the, the family issue, uh, the death in the family and seemed to throw him off his game. Then I, I understood the wanting to make sure that they weren't throwing too much on top of him. And, and but I think Cease right now, he's mentally, he's fine. He seems like he's ready for it. He doesn't seem like he gets too, uh, too rattled. He doesn't seem like he gets too high. He doesn't seem like, you know, anything really phases him. So I, I wouldn't mind seeing what his stuff looks like against major league hitters, you know, by the end of the month. And it's not like Ben Whalos is going deep in the games, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, basically what he's giving the Sox, you know, same thing with Dylan Covey. Hope he gives you four good innings. And, uh, you know, when that's the case, when you're not having like a, when he's not replacing a James Shields who throws like, you know, uh, mediocre innings, but a lot of them, you know, that, that provides a unique value to the White Sox. But yeah, when two of the starters are not good bets to get in the fifth, um, and that's, you know, I think that's probably the best possible situation to be aggressive with Cease. So there you go. We are on the call up Dylan Cease bandwagon now. So hopefully that does happen, Pete. But Pete, great question, man. Thank you so much. Our next question comes from one of our Patreon supporters, VA Shy Sox. And this is about a broadcast, but radio broadcast. They're asking, Jim, what do you think of the Andy Mazur experiment in the radio broadcast booth so far? Is he just filling in from time to time? Or is he auditioning for a permanent role should Ed Farmer ever retire? It's hard to tell uh, just because of the... 
the recent shift to WGN, you know, I, I don't exactly know where um, the WGN talent begins and the White Sox long-term vision, you know, you know, ends, you know, uh, you know, where the, where the trade-off is there. I think, you know, Farmer will be, uh, he's 69 right now, turned 70 October. So I think, you know, he's entering 70s and, you know, he's had, you know, he's been very public about his health issues and the kidney transplants and the organ donations and so forth. So, you know, he might be approaching the end of his uh, broadcast career, or at least, you know, his regular broadcast career. So I could see it being, you know, maybe not if Mazur's the guy. I think right now Mazur is the talent on hand to do it. But I think they might be, I, I could see them wanting to uh, just kind of dabble or prepare for a post-farmer uh future where they do have a more traditional play-by-play -play guy alongside Darren Jackson because I think you know Jackson's got a lot of good years left and I do like you know I, I think you know, this has been long been my stance but I think Darren Jackson would be a good you know maybe not a great analyst but a good one if you're just paired with a, a more normal broadcaster who he didn't have to counter with some of his uh, goofier behaviors to kind of balance out the mood of the booth you know with Harrelson Farmer He's had some uh, uh, some personalities that can just you know uh, they're unique ones and they're uh, they're not really the most uh, uplifting and so I think he kind of goes overboard with you know compensating with goofiness that he might not have have if you're at playing it straight along a more traditional broadcaster but I think you know Mazer I think you know he's more the uh, talent that's there kind of like Chris Ranji occasionally stepped in when he was the uh, pregame and postgame host with the score I think Mazer's the guy who just you know he's WGN and the White Sox are paying him, so he's uh, the guy to step in. I think if they were going to look for a more traditional broadcaster, it might open it up to a nationwide search. But you know, from what I've heard of him, he's been okay, um, and, mm -hmm. and I, I do like the presence he brings of you know talking about major league news and such uh, when when the White Sox really don't do a great job of discussing league wide stuff. So uh, I, I've been a fan of his so far. Um, and I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing him more and kind of seeing if there is a bigger fit for him. I just feel like after this season, it is time for a change for the White Sox to bring in a new radio play-by-play -play guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe if they do it like with Benetti where they, you know, bring somebody in, you know, mm -hmm. if somebody who has like, you know, maybe multiple gigs and, you know, isn't ready to, you know, take a full-time baseball job yet. But, you know, I could see a case where, they you know bring somebody on an 80 game schedule or you know somebody who travels or you know has a kind of a rotating on off thing so you know farmer is able to have more of a farewell tour because I, I know farmer uh he doesn't have yeah i guess he the you know, fans really haven't warmed up to him as the voice of the white Sox since johnny rooney left but you know he has been part of the radio broadcast for a lot and we know the white Sox are loyal to him and they think the world of him personally and so I think they would like a bigger thing if this were to be his last season so I don't think it's quite the end but I can see you know maybe there being the case where they are you know getting ready for the next booth at some point in the next you know five years and terrific questions from everybody this week on the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. If you have a question that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And also help support the show and site by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine where we answer additional P.O. Sox questions 
for just our Patreon supporters. They also get additional content every single week, not just from the show, but also writings from Jim. So if you love the work that we do at SoxMachine.com and you want more, go to Patreon.com slash SoxMachine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we'll be back with Sox Machine Live after the Kansas City Royals series on Wednesday night. And for those that missed the live stream, you'll be able to listen to that podcast on Thursday. And again, remember, next Monday will be the Sox Machine Draft Show, which will start at 5.30 p.m. Central Time and carry through the White Sox number three pick as they pick third I should say in the first round uh, so if you want to follow along with the Major League Baseball draft I'll be joined by Jimmy Osborne at Sox Machine also Brian Billick and James Fox of Future Sox uh, there'll be a lot of conversation about the Major League Baseball draft and what the White Sox could possibly do and also provide some instant analysis instant analysis based on who they actually pick third overall that's going to be on monday starting at 5 30 p.m central time which you can listen to on mixer.com and on socksmachine.com but that will do it for this episode if you just discovered the socks machine podcast you can listen to us via itunes spotify google podcasts and audioboom.com slash socks machine the socks machine podcast is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.